Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring people from all over the world together through sharing bicycle stories to make connections. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or an expert. It doesn't matter if you like wrenching, riding, or collecting more. If you've ever smiled while you were on a bicycle, this is the place for you. So grateful to have hit over 80,000 downloads in over 80 countries. We've all had to try making a bicycle journey with some equipment that we weren't familiar with, even if it was your first time. But what about if that equipment was a brand new heart? And then we look at a lot of short stories from the Bicycles on Main event, where people would just come up to my table and share bicycle stories, which was pretty cool. You have a lot of podcasts you could be listening to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine, especially because this ride took a while to get going this month. But I think you're going to like it. Let's roll out. So as cyclists, we have a lot of ritual. We have a lot of favorites. To get out on a bike and just go for a long period of time, we have little things that we like to be just so. So we have like our favorite brand of shorts. We have our favorite saddles. We have our favorite tires. Traveling the country and not being able to use your bike if you have to rent a bike or if you need to replace a part on your bike. For cyclists, not having everything exactly the way you want it can put you into a tizzy. For most of us, what happens is that you start to go and you gradually forget about all the little differences and just enjoy the ride. The night before doing Ragbri, which is, you know, about a 500 mile trip across Iowa, my favorite saddle, the one that was on my bike that I had shipped, the rail cracked and snapped. Now I had bought like five of these saddles to equip most of my bikes with. I, I can use other saddles, but I prefer these for long distances. And after going around to the different vendors, they had a nice little expo at the beginning. Nobody had the saddle that I use. I'm almost glad they didn't because I wasn't flush with cash at that point and I might have overpaid for such a saddle being freaked out and a little anxious. So I had to basically just talk myself down and find a saddle that looked like it would do the job and wouldn't break the bank. I found a vendor who had a bucket full of saddles and one of those saddles I got for 30 bucks. And thankfully after that episode, it was over. I didn't really think about the saddle, but when I looked down, there was a there was a brown saddle on my black bicycle. I didn't even bother to take it off when I got back home. It's fine. It works. It rolls. So as cyclists, we have very strong opinions of what we think we need and what we want. But as people, we adapt pretty well. So imagine, instead of your favorite tires or your favorite handlebars, or perhaps the hoods aren't exactly at the right angle for you, what if you were going on a bike trip with a new heart. A heart that belonged to somebody else. A heart that had been beating inside of another living person. And this poor person lost their life and generously donated their heart and you were the recipient. Unlike anything else you could change about what you bring on a bike ride, I can only imagine you'd be forever feeling grateful and aware of that new heart inside you. And that's what happened to our next guest, who received a donated heart and then cycled across country to thank the family of the donor. Some people get to choose their frames or they choose their new shoes, they get a new power meter, new kit. In my case, I was 
extremely grateful to have the chance to ride with a new heart. I received the heart transplant in 2018, and ever since, riding a bicycle has been a completely brand new experience for me. So my name is Mike Cohen. I am a bike rider. I ride for causes, and last year I was very fortunate enough to ride across the country for a second time, this time with the heart of a Navy flight surgeon because I had a heart transplant and I wanted to meet the family of the heart donor as well as pay my respects to where he was buried in Jacksonville, Florida. He was Lieutenant James Mazzuccelli. Cycling for me before then was really in the form of, it was a form of transportation. It was a form of commuting around my neighborhood, getting to friends' houses and whatnot. And the longest ride that I ever had up until that point was maybe 25 miles. And then once I decided to ride across the country, my first big ride at that point was 45 miles. Day one of the actual ride was 68 miles. So cycling, I fell in love with cycling. I was kind of pushed into cycling. But now I'm absolutely obsessed with cycling. So back in 2012, I used that ride. It was the, the entry level to me really fall in love with, with cycling. And I got a couple of jobs. I, I worked for Trek. I worked for Specialized. And riding a bike then really was brand new to me. I was really learning on the, on the spot. I was getting jobs. I was getting opportunities on the spot. And once I started realizing that cycling is a major part of my life, I realized like, okay, well, cancer is now in my rear view mirror. Cycling is in my, is in my current and my present. And I started really becoming more and more obsessed with making sure that my fitness was, was strong enough to be able to continue riding a bike. Unfortunately, work and life got in the way. In 2017, I was working a full-time sales position and just a random evening, I ended up having chest pains, tightness in my jaw, shooting pains down the left part of my arm and my and my left jaw. And later that night, I ended up finding out that I was having a heart attack. And that was initially was obviously something that needed to be treated in that capacity. And we later found out that that heart attack was caused by a golf ball-sized blood clot that was in the left ventricle of my heart, which was initially caused by congestive heart failure that I had when I initially was going through cancer. Over the 11 years since my last treatment from 2007 to 2000 and, oh, sorry, 10 years, so 2017, my heart was just gradually failing more and more and more to the point where that clot had formed and a heart attack occurred. Um, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's the cancer of the bone marrow. And my, my prognosis was two and a half years of chemotherapy treatments starting at 18. And I was able to finish the treatments by the time I was 21 fully. And in in between of having that treatment, I actually had my first congestive heart failure a year into my chemotherapy treatments. So that was when my, my heart first failed. I had multiple blood clots in my lungs, and I had pneumonia all at the same time. And uh, that diagnosis was, like, enough to be like, okay, like, what, like, what else could I do? I'm going through chemotherapy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Like, how am I supposed to be able to you know, properly live a life, you know, in this capacity. Like I'm constantly fighting and now something has come up that there's really nothing I could do. So not too long after that, I was able to recover and eventually leave the hospital. And, and I just started getting stronger and healthier and healthier. I got into running and just started really focusing on how I could use my story to help inspire other people, other kids, other young adults that are going through something similar and to know that they're, they're just not by themselves. And fast forward to from that diagnosis in about 2005 to 
2012, that was when I wrote across the country. And then when I wrote across the country for the first time from 2012 to 2017, uh, I mean, I was fine. I mean, so, so literally like I was fully healthy, everything was fine. And then out of nowhere, I had that heart attack and it just so happens that my heart had been working so hard. But unfortunately, since that clot was starting to build up, the, the output of my heart was reducing. Therefore, that caused the heart attack to where I needed to either replace the heart or I needed to have a surgery to implant a device that assists my heart in its function. And that's exactly what I had to have. I ended up having open heart surgery to implant an, a, it's called that left ventricle assist device. And they installed that in my heart and that's plugged into a wall. So I was constantly powered by a, by a plug into the wall, or if I was able to leave the house, I was plugged into VHS sized batteries. So for six months, I was literally a prison to my own condition. But then, you know, during that surgery, they're like, well, you know, once you're, you have an LVAD that's actually considered a bridge to transplant. So at some point you're going to need a heart transplant. So it wasn't a, a fully brand new, concept when they told me I needed to get a new heart at one point. So it was kind of in my mind. And then when I had that heart attack, it was just like, okay, like, you know, we need to get through this. We need to get you with the LVAD. I was able to figure out a way to live with that. It was such a pain. It was the worst. It was the worst experience I think I've experienced since chemotherapy. And then eventually it turned into being admitted to the hospital for 26 days, waiting for a heart. You know, I always say this is literally the staple of who I am, but if it wasn't for the experience I had with cancer and having chemotherapy for two and a half years, I would have not been able to properly call it, deal with this experience the way that I was able to. So once they told me I had the heart attack, like I was kind of doing an internal inventory. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? Because I was able to, like I, you know, was having an extensive history of cancer you kind of know your body to a certain extent, a little bit more than most, I would say. And at that point, I'm like, what is this? What is this? What is this? I, I, I can't recognize this. And then once I figured it out, it was a heart attack. Then I realized I'm like, okay, well, at least they know what it is. You know, it's not like a, I mean, as soon as I was in a hospital bed and confirmed with the test that they did that I need was having a heart attack. My first response, once everybody left the room, it was just my little brother and I, I took my, I took my wallet out of my pocket and I threw it to him and I, and I said, I'm like, next chapter. Like I was fully ready. Like I was fully ready, whatever it took. I didn't know how intense and how, how severe my condition was. I didn't realize there was an open heart surgery in the future. I didn't realize there was going to be two open heart surgeries in the future. But you know what? That cancer really conditioned me to be able to accept the bad news a little bit more in a neutral position than being emotional. And I feel that that was like, that was kind of what kept pushing me through everything. Like, it was just like, it, as long as it wasn't cancer, as long as I don't have to do, go through chemo, I, I consistently had the, the very, like a very, very steady mind. I was very, very grounded through the whole process. I was very lucky, very, very lucky. And um, because of the previous experiences and all the uncertainties that cancer brings, that was able to kind of, you know, right the ship for this, for this bumpy road, you know? You know, the concept of chemo brain is very, very, very present. It's, it's very hard for someone who has intense chemotherapies to remember some things in the past, right? But my memory, mm -hmm. it feels like it started to be photographic again once I had my heart issues. I remember everything as much as I possibly can. And that night, once I got confirmed that I had the heart attack and I said to my brother, I'm like, you know, everything's going to be fine. You know, next chapter, let's do this. We were being wheeled in for, for a procedure. It's called an angiogram. Andrew Graham, if you're not familiar, is where they take a camera and they insert it in your artery to see if there's any blockages within your heart. Because obviously I have a heart attack. They're like, why is this young man having a heart attack? <laughs> so they don't knock you fully out. They give you local anesthetic. So I'm laying there. I feel them in literally in my arm. I'm numb. I'm, I'm completely like I'm awake, but I'm not. I'm, I feel the pain, but I barely do. <laughs> and 
the technician says, these are the clearest, cleanest arteries I've ever seen for someone having a heart attack. He's like, I would love to trade you. He's like, let me know if you ever want to trade. So when I heard that, so when I heard those words come out of my mouth, what that confirmed to me and what confirmed to the entire situation was that it had nothing to do with my nutrition. It had nothing to do with my, my, my other parts of my body failing. I was, I didn't have high cholesterol. I didn't have high saturated fat. Like it wasn't a traditional heart attack. It was a heart attack that was caused by chemicals which is called cardiomyopathy, which is what I eventually had would cause that clot and eventually the issue that I had. Let's go ahead to waiting. You hear that you're going to need a heart transplant. Mm Mm-hmm. How long did that take, and what kind yeah. of emotional roller coaster was that? That's a good question. All right, so when you have okay, so let me just explain the whole scenario as as summarized as possible. So when you're again, <laughs> the cancer kind of, kind of had me prepared for the heart attack, right? So I had the heart attack in July twenty fifth, two thousand and seventeen. I ended up getting the surgery for that for that for the heart attack to get the LVAD was August fourth of of 2017. They said I would have the LVAD for potentially a couple of years. It was January of 2018 when I had another, I went in for a routine blood draw and they said, okay, you have an elevated level of LVH, which signifies that there's a clot somewhere within your body and we need to admit you. We don't know where this clot is. So once they were able to admit me, I was very fortunate enough to be located right next to a transplant hospital. So I was treated for the heart attack at Scripps, which is a incredible hospital, but then I needed to be transferred to UCSD at Sulpizio because they were an actual transplant center. Once I received the word that I needed to be to be admitted and they mentioned the concept of of having to be worked up for a transplant, they started putting me through that whole process of like, you know, they they go through your background, they go through your mental health, they go through your antibodies, they go through your physical health, your kidneys. I mean, they're not just giving anybody a heart. They got to make sure that if they're going to be putting the body through such a severe, intense surgery, that they're able to come out and continue living after such a massive surgery. Due to my condition, since there was, they ended up finding the clot that was in my pump, they had to give me the, the alternative of, I mean, the options of receiving another LVAD surgery or to receive or to be listed for the heart transplant. Once I decided to do the heart transplant, my entire mindset was like, okay, what do I need to do to keep my body as healthy as possible? So I used to do laps around, you know, the entire hospital room. Long story short, I was in the hospital from January 22nd to February 24th was when I received the call for my heart transplant. So initially it was it was okay because I was physically okay. I wasn't suffering. I wasn't doing anything else besides walking around with my two poles <laughs> and doing what I can to stay healthy. And unfortunately, um when you have a heart transplant, they don't there's no schedule. You don't get a time to say, Okay, Friday at eight AM you're gonna be here, you need to be here for pre surgical, blah, 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 blah. That stuff's all done because I'm already in the hospital. So from the time of January 22nd to the time of February 24th, we've had, I mean, I had three other close calls. They had a call for a heart for me, but when the, when the heart arrived or when, when the heart was being procured, by the time that it got to us or at least the hospital at that point, my, my cardiologist team did not want those other hearts. For whatever reason, they didn't fit right, they didn't look right, the condition wasn't great, whatever it was. Like, it's a very, very, very tedious process. It is scary because at least when you, you're about to have an open heart surgery, for those who have never had one, it's, it's really scary because you're about to go into the situation, they're breaking open your chest, it's a 12-hour surgery, blah, 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 you're going to wake up, you're going to have a hole in your chest, all these different things. But for me, again, I was very, 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 grateful to have had the experience of having a heart of of having an open heart surgery just six months before that. So where it was 
scary to have a heart transplant. I was kind of prepared for the entire physical experience of what the open heart surgery is going to feel like in the first place. So it really wasn't like I wasn't nervous. I was just nervous of, you know, maybe dying in the surgery because obviously that's a very long surgery and I'm on blood thinners or the fact that like when I wake up that the heart, you know, might not like me because there's a rejection option. So um, there's, I mean, it's, there's a lot of mental issues, but feel like my previous experiences had prepared me for that moment, if that makes sense. So how about we go to waking up with the new heart? At the time I was dating my ex-girlfriend and I remember waking up in ICU, very slowly waking up. Like I think I, I think the surgery was a total of 14 hours. The, previ- the previous surgery was 12 hours. So this one took a little longer. I was told everything went well and I had the breathing tube in my mouth. So I really wasn't able to speak. I wasn't able to speak for a good day. Once I, once they told me like, you know, Michael, you have a new heart. And I just felt it. I didn't feel the cords anymore. I didn't have, like, I felt a new, a brand new human being. And it was just, you know, it's bittersweet because you know that on someone's worst day of their lives, you just had your best. And that was going through my mind. It just made me realize, you know, immediately how grateful I was to be alive, to survive the surgery, to, to have a new heart. It was enough to just make me extremely grateful, extremely cautious with every action and every movement I would make at that point, going through the healing process. And it was just the most incredible experience I've ever had up until that point in my life. How about as you're getting on the bike for the first time afterwards? So that was a process that took a little while. Once you have a heart transplant, they require you to go through cardiac rehab. Three months of going to the hospital for just basic like cardiovascular work, going on the treadmill, walking on the treadmill, doing a rowing machine, elliptical, like whatever physical I was able to do, they were they were monitoring me and you know, I was working out. Throughout the whole process I kept an eye on this stationary bike that was in the corner. And previously I was told by my cardiologist when I had the LVAD that I wouldn't be able to ride my bike again because because of my condition. So I had sold a brand new Trek 9.6 stash, which is carbon bike. I mean, you probably even know it, but it's a carbon fiber fat bike or 29 plus size tires. It was my dream bike, dropper post, everything. And unfortunately, I had to sell that bike. And so I was very, very hesitant to get back on the bike, even think about cycling at that point. But I still had that internal urge to <laughs> to jump on the bike if I was able to. So one, so one day. I was physically feeling good. I started getting confidence. Like my numbers were starting to improve. I felt stronger as I was walking and I, I just go up to the PT. I'm like, is there any way I can go on that stationary bike? And she said, of course. So I get on, you know, I adjust. I mean, it was one of those really bulky gym, you know, cycling <laughs> machines. It's not, you know, it's not a spinning machine or anything like that. It was just, you know, just a big bulky stationary bike. And I had set up the saddle height. I had set up like, you know, as much as I can make it a fit as possible. <laughs> and I got on it and for, I did it for three minutes the first day and I'm like, I could do this. And then from that point forward, I started thinking, I'm like, what could I do with this? I'm like, you know what? I want to meet my heart donor's family wherever they are. I'm going to figure it out. So then I just put my head down and started working on different aspects with the mindset of starting to get back into training. And that's exactly what I did. Training started in November of 2018, so this was barely about nine months after my surgery. I ended up getting in touch with this guy. His name was Randall Franson. He was, we were just Instagram friends, and he took me under his wing. He's a, I think he's a pro cyclocross rider or, or whatnot, but regardless, he was like, you know, I would love to help you. He's like, I have a health issue of my own. Um, he's like, let me know if you'd like me to help you train. And so he gave me just a very basic training, like a training program that was very, very minimal. And I just started riding my bike. I started realizing, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I want to start getting sponsors. I was able to get a Trek Damani frame from my, from my old bike shop that I worked at. My friend, her dad worked for Shimano. So he hooked me up with the R8000 Altegra disc group set, started getting into trying to catch up with the new technology with BOA and all that stuff. 
And so I, you know, I started getting everything together. I started writing. I started working out. And eventually I declared myself ready for the ride. June of 2019 was when I declared myself ready, but I was obviously still riding. And the day that we were supposed to leave was October 1st. So that was the goal. And we left on October 1st. So as you're riding, you always look down at your bike, especially on long tours, and you're always mm-hmm. getting lost in your head. What are you thinking as you're setting out that morning? Well, uh, I mean, there was a lot of press situations that had to be kind of organized. I had Sir Bison agreed to do a documentary. So we had a lot of press at the hospital. Bill Walton was going to show up and he was going to ride with us out. And then we were going to just go. And then eventually we were going to ride to a local barbecue spot that was going to be where we'd be spending the first night. And when I woke up, I really didn't even get a chance to eat. I didn't get a chance to have coffee. I didn't have a chance to fully stretch. I mean, it was a mess. And so when I got on the bike, you know, finally, after all the that, you know, PR stuff was all finished, I was literally all over the place. Like, my heart rate was high. I had no cadence. Had a flat tire. Uh, my buddy had a flat tire within barely 15 miles of the of the initial 45 for the day and he wasn't like he was just going with me because he was my best friend and so I had to change his tire he doesn't know how to change his tires it was mess it was absolute mess and I was kind of glad that day one was that way because it was so busy it was so bad day one that I'm like it can only get better from this <laughs> so day two was really my day one if that makes sense So we started at, in San Diego, we started at the hospital where I received the heart transplant in La Jolla, and we were heading east, heading to the Julian area, which is a little northeast of us. So we were just kind of cruising at, it was a 45-mile day, and that was day one. Day two was a 60-mile day of climbing, and I just that was the day that I needed to kind of get in my own head. And that's what I did. And I just started thinking of everything. I'm like, okay, we have the camper. Let's just make sure that everybody's good. Make sure the dog is fed. Make sure that my brother is driving the RV. Okay. My buddy was, is a massive athlete. He's just a beast. And he was flying on the bike. His first time ever riding a road bike it's to that capacity. And, and he was fine. And so for myself, I'm like, you know what? This is my ride. I'm taking my pace. I'm taking my speed. And I'm just going to take it step by step. I've done this before. I know we have a long ride ahead of us, and I, I can't get too far ahead of myself. And I was thinking about what we'd be eating. <laughs> I was thinking about what beer I'd like to have. <laughs> just the very, very basics. And I felt like a normal man again. I felt like a normal cyclist. And it was just a very refreshing feeling to know that I was back. We were riding from San Diego to Jacksonville, Florida. So the total amount of mileage was like 20... I think it's 2,700 miles, and then we ended up riding a total of 1,326 out of it. Because since he was a new rider, there's a lot of roads that were kind of sketchy that he didn't feel comfortable riding, so we just drove through those parts. We had written on our RV, you know, with those little markers, like like a website. We did as much media as we could in route, but James's family had requested that we would keep a lot of the media out of some of the situations because of their experience that, that that they had in Jacksonville when James had had initially passed. So I agreed to not do any media from San Diego to Jacksonville, and we only did the Today Show and Bicycling once we got to Jacksonville. So going across the country, we had, I think it was Mississippi, we had parked in an RV park, and next to us was just someone else. And they I guess they went on the website and they donated money to our cause, and they said, hey, we were, we were sleeping next to you guys last night. We really appreciate what you're doing. Keep going. Amazing. You know, completely inspired by you. That was one. Another one was when this guy was driving his car, and we stopped at a gas station. He said, he's like, are you Mike Cohen? And it was the first time I ever had that. I'm like, yeah. He's like, dude, I saw your website from a couple cities back, and you know, I just wanted to meet you and shake your hand and like, thank you so much for what you do. It's so inspiring what you're doing. And that was amazing. And then the last one, which was beautiful, which was actually in Florida, um, which we later found out was actually a completely different experience. But we were in a parking lot 
of just a random town just getting some groceries and a cop came up to us and he's like, you know, I just want to say what you're doing is really special and really inspiring to me. And he gave us $10. Later on, we found out that from where we ended up receiving that $10 bill, it's one of the poorest counties in Florida. He gave us money where he probably didn't even have that much. And it was just like, I took that $10 bill. I never spent that. I put it in a, in a frame and it just constantly lets me know that there's good people out there, no matter, you know, rich or poor, that there's always people that want to help. And that's it's something that I, that I constantly think about. But those are the, like the most high points during the ride for sure. And then obviously the end was just unbelievable. So I'm going to ask this. So type the thing my grandmother would say, all right? So get ready. <laughs> yeah. Was there a time where you were like, am I pushing this? I mean, I got a new heart and I'm going to be doing what with it? Was yeah. there that feelings? Could you talk about that a little bit? maybe? You know, for me, no. For me, I'm very lucky enough. I'm very, very intuitive with my body. With the people around me, that's something else. I and mean, everybody was concerned, but they also trusted me. So I feel like, like partially, there was more concern from the ex-girlfriend. There was more concern from the mom and dad. There's more concern from some of my other friends. For the people that were actually on the actual ride with me, I think they were very... I mean, my brother was there, and, and he was on top of me from the beginning. He's my little brother, but he did a lot of my dressing changes. He was more like my big brother for a lot of times during my, my heart experiences. And there really wasn't, there really wasn't any concern because the big picture was to get across the country. And I never had mentioned that I'm going to ride every single mile. I never had mentioned that I'm going to ride in traffic. I'm going to go through major cities. If anything, like I was trying to do the best that I can to when we were getting through major cities that we would just drive through the city with the RV and then once we were leaving, we would just drive to the outskirts of that city so there just wouldn't be so much traffic. Like, that's what that was part of our routing. So I really tried to take as much precaution as possible in all capacities, and I would always make sure I was near a hospital. I was always make sure that we were not far from a major hospital as well. For myself, for my crew, I don't think there really was much of that. For other people that were just spectating, I think that that was probably through, through most of their minds, <laughs> to be honest. So you felt you were striking a balance between really embracing this gift and right. using it to its full capacity, but at the Correct. same time, you had your own standards for what's safe and what's Correct. not safe and what you felt comfortable, and you weren't going to risk that. Yeah, there's no chance. And that's how I ride these days right now. I mean, I've learned how to fully ride with my heart rate, and now I'm, I've gotten to the point where I could fully control my heart rate as long as I properly warm up, which I figured out thanks to the ride. <laughs> What it's like to to ride a bike with a transplanted heart is, I would say it's just like as if, that's a very, very good question. Um, there's no there's no more precautions. I mean, I take per day, I take eight pills in the morning, I take five pills in the afternoon, and then I take four pills at night. And total of those medications... Two of those are specifically for the heart transplant. One of them is for cholesterol, and one is a prophylactic. It's an antidepressant that they just have you on. So for me, what I've learned and what they've taught me is that you can't just go from like a cold start. So you're just saying cold. They don't want me in, in anything freezing. They don't want me to t take any, any ice plunges. They don't want me to take any bike packing in zero degrees with the windshield of minus 25. I, I can't ride in ex extremely cold conditions, but if I were to ride in like 45 to 50, I'm fine. But I would just have to give myself a little bit of warm-up. So what I do for my warm-up is I get on the bike, I clip in, I turn turn my Wahoo on, I turn my Whoop on, I turn my, you know, my Apple Watch on. So I have three different heart rates that are backing each other up. And then I just... I get to a very, very consistent cadence and I don't, no matter if someone passes me, if it's a climb, if it's a descent, I keep the same cadence. I keep the same effort throughout the entire warm up. My heart is fully in its top condition in its, in its optimal production range. So I've noticed that thanks to the ride, 
that it takes me about that time. If I get 45 minutes, I could probably ride for at least 100 plus miles. My longest ride that I had with the heart transplant has been 72 miles. Yeah, so we get to Florida, and it was the coldest, rainiest, snowiest part of the entire trip. <laughs> the panhandle of Florida, for some reason, got some early winter stuff, and there was snow, there was slush. I mean, it was some days were disgusting, absolutely disgusting. <laughs> but once we got to Jacksonville, we saw that sign, we rode it to Jacksonville, and it all hit me. I'm like, this is actually happening. That whole process of taking day by day is now here. And I didn't know what to think. I was like, I felt my heart beating. I was talking to my heart out loud. I'm like, James, everything's okay. You know, we're going to see your parents now. We're going to see your mom. We're going to see your grandparents. And just riding there, it was a, I think it was a nine mile ride. And it was the fastest nine mile ride of my life. I didn't feel a thing. I was, I was coughing because I have a bad respiratory infection at that point. In fact, I think I might even had the initial stages of COVID up at that point. Who knows? But regardless, we get to the cemetery, I turn left, and we cruise in. And on the right, there's a crowd of James's mom, his stepdad, his stepsisters. On the left, there's another crowd of people. And they're all waiting, and they're all looking at Seton and I riding into the cemetery. I get to Christine, James's mom. I get off my bike. I, I handed it to Seton, and I just walked up to her, and I said, hi. And I gave her a big hug. That moment where we made contact was like the physical feeling of closure. Like once I saw her and I felt her and she saw me and she felt me, it all, it all, everything got better from that point. And so eventually, you know, we're just walking around a little bit and then we walked to, to James's gravesite. It was, it was very, very, it was exactly what I needed, to be honest with you, Mike. I get to continue living and you're not here. And I just want to thank you for my life. There's, there's no other way to make it sound better, make it sound worse, whatever. But seeing his, the headstone, you know, crouching down, putting my hand on the inscription of his name, the date that he passed was just, it was, the best and worst day of my life at the same time. Because I recognize that these people are mourning and I'm celebrating. Did they say anything in particular that they wanted you to know? Um, Did they? Yeah. They told me he loved pizza. And long story short, I ended up starting to become pretty, pretty into pizza. Like, I'm born and raised in New York. I'm a... <laughs> Pizza's everywhere. It's the same way as like Mexican food is out in San Diego. Like pizza's everywhere. You know pizza. Pizza's, pizza's everywhere. You, I mean, you don't have to go very far on the East Coast to find pizza. And I was not a fan of it. I was not a fan of it. And, and once he passed, I started seeking out pizza more often. <laughs> Without a doubt. I love pizza now. Um, Did they say, had he ever been a cyclist at all or? Oh yeah, they started, yeah, he was, he was more of a motorcycle guy. He was a scuba guy. He just loved yeah. spending time with his friends. He was not a cyclist. He would not have done what I did. That's for sure. <laughs> his heart was in incredible shape. I mean, how how incredible. old was he? He was 32. We were both 32, exact same size, everything. Yeah. What do you wish somebody would ask you about that they haven't asked you about yet? Um, A good question that I would want to be asked would be, Well, what's a question that you're, like, thinking that's a very deep or sensitive question that you would not <laughs> want to ask? No, seriously, because because I don't really mind those questions at all because I, I have no issue with the answer. But the issue, like, with questions that I have not been asked. I mean, of, if we were having beers and stuff and just hanging yeah. out around a fire, I would say, yeah. do you feel connected to this other person in some that's a great question. different way than most, than most people would? You know, it's yes. like... Do I feel any different since I received the heart transplant? Or do I feel any more connected with my heart donor? And the answer to that is absolutely. I would say since he's passed and since I've been living with his heart, I've, I 100% feel that I have someone looking out for me. Um, there's a lot of coincidences that happen in my life on a daily basis that are just, how did that happen? You know, like for instance, he was a doctor. 
and I mean, he literally was a Navy flight surgeon. And throughout my day, there's some times that I leave out like a drawer or a cabinet open and I miss hitting my head or my forehead or my face from hitting that the edge that could be catastrophic for most people. <laughs> I'm missing that edge and that cabinet door and that drawer by centimeters on a daily basis. And then there's sometimes I'm, like I'm listening to music and I look over and the song, the song's chorus says the word giant. And as I'm looking over to my left, I see a kid riding a giant bicycle as the lyric is being said. This, the word says giant, and I look at the bike and it's a giant at the same time that the word is said. Um, there's some weird stuff, man. There's some swims with me all the time. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even, like, I'm not even kidding. There are definitely, like, him and I are synced up for sure, and I, constantly say that he might have the brains but I have the heart if that makes sense because it's like his heart was what I needed to continue but my brains in regards of like what I want to do with with this second chance of life is different than what he would have done with it he was a doctor trying to save people I'm trying to inspire people so we're both in the same mindset of trying to help people but there's just no way that I would be able to fix someone's broken arm if it's hanging out of their shirt or whatever it was like I I am not a a person that feels comfortable with medical issues and blood. And this man was an absolute legend when it came to that stuff. But yeah, I definitely feel he messes with me all the time. I feel that we talk all the time and I'm just really bummed that I would, that I've, that I would never be able to actually hang out with this guy. That's the truth. On some level you have some type of camaraderie though. Of course. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's a perfect fit. Let's put it that way. It's a perfect fit. I mean, my cardiologist teams used to tell me that you currently have the heart of a beat-up VW bus. And this new heart is literally a brand new Ferrari. And I feel it. I feel the difference. Like, there's some times, like, when I'm on my bike rides, when, like, I'm just cruising, where, like, there's a time, like, where there's, like, a segment coming up on Strava. And, like, all right, no. I'm like, you know what? I'm five foot 11, 211 pounds. You know, I'm in decent shape. You know, I'm a cyclist. Like this one segment comes up and I just turn, you know, I turn the gas on. Like I give myself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go hard as possible on this one. And my heart rate gets up to 147, maybe 150. And within seconds, it drops down to 123, 124. And I have this segment for the day. And like, I just never thought I'd be in this capacity. I didn't think that I would ever have the strength to be, you know, a top rider in San Diego on some days. <laughs> you know, I just never, I don't look at myself as that kind of rider yet. I feel like I'm constantly working to become a better rider, a stronger rider, a stronger person. And maybe either it's me not believing what I'm capable of doing or me just absolutely being blown away by what I'm actually capable of doing now. It's unbelievable. Like, I can't believe, like, that I would actually be on a segment that my name for the day would be on number one, that I am the fastest person for that day. Like, it blows my mind. Blows my mind. I can't talk enough about how lucky and grateful I am, um, but I always will. And I will, will never stop trying to do these podcasts and, and share my story with as many people as possible because... You know, his story of who he was and who he is now just has to be continuously known and told because he's a legend. He saved my life. He absolutely saved my life. And if there's a way that I can inspire other people for going through difficult aspects of their life, like I've been through difficult stuff too. And I was able to figure out the mindset that I was able to, to, to need to get through this stuff. I'm very lucky. I'm very, very, very lucky. I guess to discuss about organ donation, that's that's one of the major parts and reasons why I came on is to express how important it is. And and like we just said, it's such a, a simple way to give back to society and to be a part of a community that really doesn't require much of an investment besides a decision to be made now for something that could maybe happen in a couple of years. And so the thing that we a lot of us try to not think about is the concept of death, the concept of our loved ones dying. And I feel that when we discuss organ donation, that 
in some cases, it's a very touchy subject because, like you mentioned, some people feel like they like it's a jinx. Some people feel that, you know, there's a secret society that's going to now know that they have agreed to become a donor so that, that someone's just going to steal their organs. That's just not how it is. And, you know, lucky enough for us, we're cyclists. We're active and we participate in endurance sports. So which means that our organs are they're in very, very good condition. So if, God forbid, something were to happen, if there was a bike accident, if there was something that was just completely inopportune and something happens, you know, we'd be able to get an organ for that situation. And the list of people that are currently waiting for organs right now is growing every day. People die waiting on that list every day. And it's very important for us as healthy, active cyclists and runners and endurance athletes to put ourselves in that position because you never know if someone that you love or someone that you care for might be in the, might be in the unfortunate position to need a li- you know, like a liver, a kidney and, you know, in worst case scenario, a heart. So it's such an easy way to contribute to society by just going online and registering, you know, on your local DMV or any way that you want to do it. You know, the way that I was found out, well, I mean, the, organization that worked with me was called Life Sharing. Um, there's Donate Life. There's a lot of different organizations out there, and it's fully safe. It's fully confidential, and it's just a way that you can help people that you have never met. But at some point, if there's a, a catastrophic situation and you're in a position to be able to help someone else continue their life, and if you are not able to, you're you're allowing someone to continue to see their mom. You're allowing someone to to continue to see their daughter or their son or their brother. I think that's just a beautiful gift that you can give to someone else is the opportunity to continue living. And in James's case, he decided that he wanted to become an organ donor once he once he learned about it. Once he was able to check that box on his driver's permit when he was learning how to drive, that was something that he was very passionate about. And after he passed, I came to learn that he ended up saving 11 people's lives with his decision to donate his body. And just to be clear, you don't need to change anybody's mind right now to make a significant impact. Just people who are already considering donating is just to have that conversation with their loved ones to make sure that everybody's aware of that decision. So if, God forbid, that painful time comes, everybody's clear and there's no doubt and the process can can go smoothly. You're not trying to convince people who don't want to donate their not for whatever reasons, but the people who already are there and be like, yeah, I think I would do that, to mm-hmm. actually just formalize that. Just formalize right. that, and that's a huge major win. Correct. Absolutely. It's just a uncomfortable conversation that has to be had, and it's a very, very positive, powerful, impactful conversation. Thank you very much for coming on the show. If people want to find out more or they want to watch the movie or follow you on social media or find out more about mm-hmm. this, where would they go? To follow me, I am on Instagram, I am on Facebook, and I have my website, my blog. It's MrMikeCohen.com, and my Instagram handle is at MrMikeCohen as well. And you could find the documentary that we had filmed on Bicycling Magazine's website, their YouTube, my YouTube, my Instagram. I mean, it's everywhere. So I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure to to meet you and to share my story with you and your audience. And I look forward to at some point maybe getting together when it's not 25 degrees windshield factor and um, maybe we can go on a bike ride. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) All right. Take care. Thank you so much. part of the program where we express our gratitude with the mid-roll thank yous. I'm thankful for people following on the different platforms. So for following on Podbean, thank you to Other Muir. Nefisica Part 2. Yes, what he said. Jason V. Lasik. Thanks a lot for following on Podbean. Reval with a nine in them between. 
Yep. And then Acloid77. Thank you very much for following on Podbean. The other thing you can do to really help the show is to leave a friendly review somewhere. And for leaving those reviews on Apple Media, thank you very much to Biking Plumber. That's a great review. Thank you very much. And Desert Mantis. Thank you very much, Desert Mantis. So apart from liking and sharing and telling people about the show, the other thing you can do to help support the show is to be a supporter on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help me pay for the cost of the show and help me provide free stickers, basically, for anybody who wants them. So to thank some of my new Patreons, thank you to Captain Walker's Bicycles. And also thank you very much to Gary and all my other Patreons. Thank you very much for helping me to run the show. Oh, that's right, Falky. If they'd like to become a Patreon supporter, just go to Patreon and search up Bike Karma, and that's how they'll be able to find it. A mid-roll thank you wouldn't be complete without thanking Fred Thomas from The Frame and Wheel. Fred's whole job is helping people selling their bicycle-related stuff and getting time, space, and cash. We are currently right in the peak of the best time in years to sell used bicycles, equipment, and accessories. The supply chains are depleted, wait lists are long, and if there's not somebody out there that wants your stuff right now, nobody probably wants your stuff then. So with demand wicked high, why haven't you sold your own stuff yet? I mean, Fred's a business, he's gonna make some money from selling stuff, but maybe the excuse you tell yourself is that you're going to do it and you're going to eliminate having someone else involved and you're going to do this all yourself. Well, why haven't you? Well, the thing that's stopping you is probably because you really just got better stuff to do. Maybe you start to think about listing your items and taking all the photos and then dealing with people, having to come up with policies and returns and juggle fees, figuring out if you can safely meet people when you sell your stuff, or if it's shipping, then how are you going to ship the thing without it breaking or getting damaged or maybe just the person on the other side saying it got broken? Well, all that's just the tip of the iceberg of all the excuses that people will use when they start to actually do it and then you'll be right back where you are. So why not let Fred do it? There's many different options that you can use at the frame and wheel to get rid of your quality bicycle parts and accessories. All the options are up on his website, but one of the ways, which I did, is just throw your stuff into a box and you know wrap it the best you can and just send it off to him. He'll list it, figure out what it is, and sell it and get the best price that he can for it. He'll deal with all the crazy customers who some of them are sketchy and they try and do things to game the system to try and get free stuff. Fred's savvy and knows how to deal with all the people. So if you've got a nice bicycle that you're just not using as much or maybe it's not the right one for you anymore or maybe you've got some parts around, some takeoffs that you used that you thought you'd need someday but you don't or maybe you have some cycling accessories that you just got other ones. Do yourself a favor and send them off to the frame and wheel. Let Fred take care of it for you and give you more time space and cash and if you're in the market to buy things check out the frame and wheel as well because Fred has a lot of great stuff for sale that you might not be able to get at your local bicycle store right now please give him a follow on social media and say thanks Fred for helping to support the bike karma podcast now back to the show Now it's time to remind all the listeners to do an ABC quick check every time before you ride your bike. It only takes seconds and it could save your life. For A, check the air. Just squeeze the tires on the side mostly. See if you've got enough pressure to make a safe journey. B is for brakes. Make sure that you can't push the handles all the way down to the handlebars. Make sure that your brake shoes are not hitting the tire. Things get bumped around when you move your bikes, and you gotta just check them over really quick. For those of you with disc brakes, just take an overall look at your brakes and see if they look like they're gonna be able to do their job. C is for chain and the chain line. Check basically what drives your bike. Sometimes chains break. They also stretch. But even worse, there's some things that could snap or break while you're riding. So just do an overall quick little check. You don't have to be an expert. Just see if there's anything that looks broken or not quite right. Quick stands for quick release, which is the dominant way right now where a lot of wheels stay on the bicycle. Make sure they're closed. Make sure they didn't get unfolded. But there's also bolts 
that hold wheels onto bicycles. And of course, there's now the new standard, which is through axles. So ch whatever's holding the wheels on your bike, just check and make sure that they're actually attached correctly. Quick also stands for doing a quick overall check of your bike. Pick it up about six inches off the ground and just let it drop gently and see if anything comes off of it or if it makes a weird noise. Just doing this overall quick check before you go for a ride is going to help you to spot huge problems that it's a lot better to spot them then than it is to spot them as you're going down a giant hill. So every time before you ride, please do an ABC quick check. So this May, we had decorated bicycles on Main Street set up, about 60 different artistic bicycles, Van Gogh, flower bikes, submarine bikes, watermelon bikes. We had E.T. in a tree, some serious, some funny, but all of them just to celebrate spring and each other. And I set up a booth on Main Street to talk about the Weathersfield High School Bicycle Club and our annual swap meet bike show festival. And also to take stories from anybody who had them for the podcast. So as people were walking up and down Main Street in Old Weathersfield with bikes on their mind, they'd come by the booth and I'd ask them, hey, you got any bicycle stories to share? And some people didn't want to be recorded, a little shy, a little nervous, but here's some people who were okay with it. So three short stories three very different short stories, and then one from my mom, who was reminded of her childhood bike while walking around looking at them on Mother's Day. So, a whole bunch of bicycle stories, short ones from other human beings. Here we go. All right, I'm Herman Schaber from Newington, Okay, and what is your bicycle story? Uh, it was a World War II victory bicycle that I still had when I was in my young teens. My father bought it new in World War II, and he used to use it for work so he could save gasoline for a weekend outing for the family. Because gasoline was rationed back then? Yes. Oh, yeah. And you had a ration booklet? Yep, yep. Oh, he did, yeah. I was young. It must have been quite a pretty penny to, to buy a bike back in those Probably. days. But he had a good job doing war work at the Royal Typewriter, which is also long gone. What can you tell me about the bicycle? Uh, not too much really, but it was a long time ago. It was a skinny wheeled bike, single speed, and I don't remember what kind of brakes it had. It had some kind of brakes. Uh, probably single on the rear wheel, I don't know. I'm thinking it was kind of red or maroonish. Oh, fancy. Yeah. Other than that, I don't really remember much about it. I mean, I was a kid and it was just a bike, you know? <laughs> and I kept it forever. Where were you riding back then when you were riding on it? Oh, almost anywhere. Down to the grocery store, I had twin baskets on the back after a while. Carry things home that way and I did the same thing with a motorcycle later. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing your story. All righty, thank you. Karen Serio, Newington, Connecticut. So what's your bike story? In the fourth grade, I love biking, always have and always will. And in the fourth grade, I actually broke my leg uh, biking and had a cast from my hip down to my toes. Uh, thankfully, they don't do that anymore because it was a break in the shin. Um, what happened during the accident? I would have been eight and I was just riding in my neighborhood, turning a corner, and it was April, so the, the sand was still there from the winter, and uh, as an eight-year-old, wasn't necessarily cautious <laughs> when I was biking, so just went around the corner, happened to slide in the sand, and fell over and broke my leg. Um, however, I was in a cast for about eight weeks, and I was in fourth grade, I missed learning division <laughs> um, because uh, before ADA I was on the second floor and couldn't really comfortably hike upstairs with crutches so I got shipped down to a different teacher on the first floor and they'd already finished division so I had to figure it out on my own but thankfully I'm a natural math talent 
<laughs> so it worked out. But I did end up working in disability claims and um, always try to put myself in someone else's shoes. And I think that's the main reason. So the bicycle made it so that you missed a whole skill yes. in mathematics. Yes, correct. However, again, I thankfully got my father's math talent, so I was able to catch up. Wow, that's great. Thank you very much for sharing your story. That's awesome. You're very welcome. My name is Megan Conley. I am from Salt Lake City, Utah. So what is something interesting that happened to you with bicycles? Um, so one day, so I was a missionary and I was in Carlsbad, New Mexico and my companion and I were biking about three and a half miles away to meet with somebody just to talk to them. And I was wearing a dress and so I tied my dress to my bike so it wouldn't fly up and I'd flash people. But my bike had a history of st like not working at the most inopportune times. And so one of these times is when we were biking, neither of us knew the city very well and we got lost, but we ended up at, the, at a busy intersection so we had to cross it very quickly because just the way that it was set up, there wasn't any designated crosswalks, we just kind of had to go and hope that we didn't get plastered by a bus. Halfway through the intersection, my bike stopped working, and so I had to jump off my bike, untie myself, pick it up, and run across the street in about five seconds flat before a car <laughs> uh, came around the corner to hit me. And we were still about a mile, mile and a half away from our destination, and my bike just wasn't working, so I had to carry it a mile and a half to where we needed to go. <laughs> sometimes you carry your bike, and sometimes your bike carries you. Yeah, exactly. Well, awesome. Thank you very much for sharing your bike story. Yeah, thank you for having me. The last short story is from my mom, about her mom getting her a bike. Before you hear this, though, to me, I think it's a sweet little story. I think you would appreciate better knowing a little bit about my grandmother. My grandmother was quite a character. Sophie, my mom's mom, was a formidable lady, equal parts sugar and gasoline. Jedi mind tricks were nothing compared to the Machiavellian web my grandmother could weave. And this was all back in pre-online times. She could hold a grudge indefinitely, and poisoning the well behind your back with gossip was the least that would happen to you if you didn't go along with her schemes. Today, asking to see the manager is a joke. It's a meme. But I learned about fear from the seat of a shopping cart. As a young child looking to the eyes of terrified store managers facing off with my grandma, I loved my grandmother much in the way you'd love a tiger. She taught me about the paradoxes of human nature. She was great in a lot of ways. She'd play cards with me for hours, but then she'd make me do chores for hours to work off the money I'd lost to her. My childhood was a strange mixture of learning from her manipulative strategies and learning how to defend against them. So on Mother's Day this year, when my mom, Barbara, came to walk around town and look at the bikes and told me the story about her childhood bike, you'll hear her laugh when she glosses over her mom asking others to put in their points for my mom. We know that once Sophie decided to apply her semi-dark magic to getting my mom that bike for free that year, it was going to happen or there would be hell to pay. I wouldn't be surprised if the owner of the drugstore running the contest put a thumb on the scale to avoid Sophie fallout. So with that historical footnote done, here's my mom sharing her memory of her childhood Columbia. It was, it was really nice. It was a store, and Cuba's drugstore was in it, and every year they had a, a boy's bike and a girl's bike, and they had so many points for it, and the person that ended up with the most points got it. And so my mother was running around <laughs> to all the relatives and the neighbors to <laughs> make sure they put their points on me, and that year I got it. I got the, I got the Columbia bike, the girl's bike. Beautiful bike, I love that bike and uh, they had a boy's bike that matched it. Nice to get it. <laughs> How old were you? How old was I? Let's see, probably eight or nine. I didn't have a brother or a sister at that point yet. So, or, or Carol was really little, you know, but. 
And where did you write it? You were back in High Street in Norwich then, right? You wrote it on the on the on the road, the street in front of your house. Yeah, couldn't take it out, you know, like ride it to school or anything, you know, one, you know, but. Everybody had bikes on High Street, and we used to ride, so that was good. It was it was nice. It was it was a good thing to do. <laughs> did you just do circles up and down the street? No, we we did the whole street. <laughs> then we went up, and would pass it, and would go to the school, <laughs> come back. <laughs> what was the farthest you ever went on it? Not even a mile. <laughs> back then, it was different. <laughs> It was different. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't ride to, you know, like the other side of town, or you didn't do that. You stayed in your own neighborhood. Yeah. Where people knew you. Yeah. What did it look like? It was beautiful, blue, big one, <laughs> two big wheels on it. <laughs> was it too big for you? No. You were a little Polish girl. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was nice. Definitely gonna look it up and. Uh, picture album when I get home. <laughs> it was a Columbia? I, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, How long did you ride it for? How many years did you keep it? A long time, till I went into high school. Back then people used to ride, you know. Just for fun, just yeah. ride it around. Yeah. yeah, didn't have too much else to do, so. <laughs> All right, happy Mother's Day. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for a nice one. <laughs>